0: Hi, I'm Catherine Hurd, and I direct the World Prison Research Programme at the Institute for Criminal Policy Research here at Birkbeck. In this podcast, I'd like to talk about some of the highlights from from an event that we held last month on female imprisonment, and also to tell you about some of the amazing speakers that we heard from at this event. And in the accompanying blog, I've provided links to their slide presentations as well. I hope you'll take the time to check that out. So why did we hold an event on female imprisonment? Well, here at ICPR, we host the World Prison Brief, a unique resource providing free access to the best available data on prisoner numbers in almost every country on the globe. This gives us a bird's eye view of important trends in world prison numbers, and the numbers have generally been on the rise in recent decades, with alarming consequences for prison conditions. That's a concern because rising numbers of prisoners doesn't usually mean more resources to pay for them. What it often does mean is worse conditions, more overcrowding and less access to any hope of rehabilitation. And reform or rehabilitation is something that you might think of as the main point of locking people up in the first place when they've committed a crime. For a few years now, we've been concerned at the rate at which female prisoner numbers have been growing throughout the world. Our latest report on female imprisonment shows that the total number of women imprisoned globally has increased by a massive 53% since 2000. The male equivalent has increased by around 20%. Numbers of women prisoners are rising in every continent of the globe, with significant increases reported in both developed and less developed countries. This matters because of the very high levels of vulnerability that we know exist among women who get caught up in criminal justice processes. Women and girls in prison usually come from backgrounds of disadvantage. They are highly likely to have been victims of crime themselves. They are more likely than other women to have histories of trauma, abuse, neglect and mental ill health. Up to 80% of women prisoners have an identifiable mental illness, according to the World Health Organization. So to look at this issue in depth, we brought together experts in female imprisonment from around the world for this event. And I'd like to introduce you to each one of them and invite you to listen to some of what they had to say. First of all, we heard from prison philanthropist Lady Edwina Grosvenor. Edwina has worked in criminal justice reform for more than 20 years now, and for my money, her most groundbreaking and vital contribution has been to champion what's called trauma-informed practice, recognising and giving proper attention to the high levels of trauma, abuse and harm that women prisoners have already experienced before their custody journey even begins.
1: Thank you very much for having me. and. Um... First of all, yes, um, I have been introduced, but often people say, where are you from, what do you do? And the way I describe myself is um, that I am a prison philanthropist, so I give um, my personal wealth away. I don't have a trust or foundation, and that's the way I've operated for 18 years since I've been working in prisons, predominantly in this country, but also around the world. Um, I started at a young age. I was 18 when I walked into my first prison. That was central jail in Kathmandu, in Nepal. And um, I wasn't expecting at that age to walk First of all, I wasn't expecting to walk into a prison. But second of all, I wasn't expecting to leave knowing that that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my life. Um, I turned 36 last week, and I know that I will be doing this till I die, to be honest. Um, There's so much work to do. I really love it. And it's work that's taken me all over the world. It started in Nepal. What was so interesting when I came out of that prison, I always say that I came out physically, but I never came out mentally. Um, The things that I saw in um, central jail in Kathmandu are things that I keep on seeing in prisons that I've been into in California, New York, Norway, Hawaii, all the weird and wonderful places that I've been to because of of this work. In a way, I think it's sad that all these issues seem to be the same, whether it's domestic violence, abuse, poverty, addiction, women being sort of controlled by men predominantly, committing their crimes predominantly because there's a man controlling them somewhere, whether it's a pimp or a um, a drug dealer. But then at the same time, I'm also sort of filled with optimism in the fact that the global issue is the same. And if we're all facing and fighting the same battles, then surely, as a collective, we can probably move more than if we were just working in isolation with different problems in different countries. Um, after Nepal, I worked in style prison up in Manchester, which is a women's prison in Manchester, as some of you all know. And I went in there having studied criminology and sociology and criminal behavior, actually, in Australia. And. Um, and I, I was so shocked that uh, the government thought that they could organize things in such a way that things would get better in this environment. So I, you know, I was in my early 20s and I thought, well, I must have missed something. Because clearly, I'm in my early 20s, I don't know very much other than what I've sort of um, learned at university. Um, but I can clearly see that this is not really going to lead most of these people to get better. So I thought, well, someone somewhere doesn't know what's going on. So I thought, how do I get myself into the corridors of power and start becoming a nuisance and um, make sure that the people at the top kind of know what's going on? Because then surely, if they could be told, they would be horrified, um, and then everything would be fixed. Uh, I, I did end up working in the House of Lords um, for a time, and I learned a lot. But I also learnt that whilst there were lots of people, some of whom are in this room, that are very passionate about it and care, um, There's also a sort of, that sense of, that's so few women, you know, it's the men that keep me awake at night, it's the men's estate that's in free fall, so like that's kind of okay. The fact that people can say that out loud and not think that it's it's weird is slightly strange, I thought. Whilst I was sort of working in and around government, I was working more and more with the Ministry of Justice and what was NOMS and now is HMPPS, I think. It's hard to keep up. Um, I also learned about the third sector organizations that really prop up the system. Um, I learned about the systemic dysfunction, certainly in the England and Welsh system, but it's something that I have seen in California. It's something that you kind of see the world over. There's a sort of... um, a certain sense of a lot of people that work inside have sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, like somehow it's okay. I was in Pelican Bay Prison a couple of weeks ago, um, a state supermax for men in Northern California, and um, the man that I was with sort of said, you know, it's not that bad, is it? It's quite clean. I mean, this is purported to be one of the worst prisons in the whole of America, but yet people could still walk in there and say, it's okay, isn't it? I saw men sitting in cages. I didn't think that was OK. There was officers walking around with guns. I didn't think that was OK. There's mesh above the corridors where the gunner, they call them, fires down onto inmates' heads if they're misbehaving. I didn't think that was OK. I didn't really think anything about this place was OK. But you know, there's a certain amount of blindness that happens. And, and I often say to people, it's, it's not the, um, the self-harm, the suicide, the abuse that sort of gets me anymore. Of course it still gets me, but actually what really scares me is the human being's ability to not see anymore. And I think that's something for all of us who work in the system to make sure that we never stop being outraged by what's going on. Um, yes, I also get asked the whole time, well, yes, Edwina, that's great, but what about the men? And I, And I think it's a really unhelpful narrative to pitch this as a male-female thing, you know, it's um, a human problem and we need a humane answer. If I was talking about children to someone, they'd never say, what about the old people? So why, when we're talking about women, do people say, what about the men? And of course, you know, I uh, did have a father until recently. I've got a brother, a husband, a son. I care very deeply about men. Um, But it's different issues and it's different problems. And we're all about working smart and working effectively. And I'd love for our government to sort of hear that part of the argument, as opposed to saying, why are all these women whinging about giving preferential treatment to other women? Because that's unhelpful, and I don't think that's what any of us are about. Um, So why are things getting worse? Well. In our country, um, I think it's sort of quite obvious, we're sort of slightly obsessed with locking people up. 84% of our women in this country are in for non-violent crimes. I don't think that's okay. I don't think that the taxpayers' money should be used in that way, 42,000 pounds to keep a woman in prison for one year, 32,000 pounds to educate someone at Eton College for a year. Um, These women come out more likely to re-offend, or more likely to offend, and their children go into care. Economically, it doesn't stack up. So when people aren't interested in the emotional arguments, I'm then still slightly amazed how some people don't care about the economic argument, which um, it's a colossal waste of money in my eyes. Um, my big thing uh, sort of in the last two years, of course, the um, trauma-informed side of things, working in a trauma-informed way with people. Which could be applied to schools, could be applied to hospitals. It it could be applied to anyone working with a human being. That I think pretty much uh, captures all of us. I met Stephanie Covington, and I was really taken aback by her work. She works. She's um, from America, and she leads on gender-specific studies and gender-specific ways of working. And she's big on the trauma-informed agenda. I had to go to California to see the work that she did. Um, I went into the Californian women's prisons and it became very obvious very quickly that she was onto something. I came back to England and said to the um, head of the prison service, we only have 12 women's prisons in this country. We only have 4,000 women in prisons, roughly, in England and Wales. They had about 4,000 women under one roof. And I said to him, you know, wouldn't it be brilliant? Can't we bring this across the pond and get it going? simple and he of course said well Edwina there's no money and I said well I'll pay for it and then he went okay well who would organize it who would and I said well I would do it and he went I don't think I gave him anywhere else left to hide so he sort of went okay I said I'd need your backing though um I then checked in with all the number one governors to see if they were interested they all said they were so I brought Stephanie over and we um delivered the training on site so that the officers didn't have to leave their prisons because, of course, with the understaffing, that's difficult. That started two years ago. Um, every six months, Stephanie would come over from California. On the one hand, it's about training the staff and getting your envirom- environment trauma informed, but it's also about training the women up themselves in order to facilitate the groups. There was a big, mm, sort of, culturally, that's not really what we do. And of course, these are all the problems that Stephanie faced in California. And what we know is that when you demedicalize this stuff, that can often threaten people. Um, The women want to be taught by their peers. They have survived the trauma. They're able to carry each other's trauma. They're able to do it. The research says so. Um, We have three women's prisons now running healing trauma. For men, it's not called healing trauma. It's called Building resilience. For women, it's five sessions, for men, it's longer. That's where the gender specific aspect comes in. I was horrified to learn that in our mental health treatment services um, and our addiction services in this country, we don't address trauma. We don't. We just don't. I thought that had been made up. I thought maybe that I'd made it up somewhere along the line until I spoke with people at the NHS and I said, This can't be true. And they said, Well, it is. So I think there's a big thing, certainly in this country, to move towards more of that trauma-informed working and the gender-specific aspect is not about man-bashing and it's not about preferential treatment, it's about working smarter. So I think I should probably stop there before it turns Thank into you. a rant. No, Thank,
0: no. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Next we're going to hear from Roy Walmsley, the founder and director of the World Prison Brief. Roy presented the key data from his report, the fourth edition of the World Female Imprisonment List. Roy broke down the data on women prisoner numbers by continent, region and country, as well as giving us examples of some of the most striking trend information. He explained that some of the biggest increases have occurred in countries already struggling with severe overcrowding in their prisons. In El Salvador, for example, female prisoners are now at ten times the level that they were in 2000, while in Cambodia and Indonesia, numbers have increased sixfold. In Brazil, women and girls in prison are now at four times the number they were in 2000, and severe resource constraints make the custodial experience for them pretty unbearable. I'm glad
2: to have the opportunity to present some of the main points from this new edition of the World Female Imprisonment List. We now know that since about the year 2000, the number of women and girls detained in penal institutions, either pre-trial or post-sentence, has increased by about a quarter of a million. What was then around 465,000 is now around 715,000. This is a rise of over 53%. In the same period, the male prison population has increased by around 20 percent. This can't be explained in terms of the growth in national population levels. The United Nations figures for the world population indicate that this rose only by 21 percent in about the same period. The largest numbers are in the US, more than 200,000, and China, Where we know of more than 100,000. Now, out of the global prison population, women and girls make up nearly 7%. In Africa, they make up only 3% of the prison population, which is less than half that in all the other continents, each of the other continents. The countries whose prison populations have the highest proportions of female prisoners are predominantly in Asia. 21% of Hong Kong's prison uh, prison population is female, and it's between 12 and 18% in Laos, Macau, Qatar, Kuwait, Thailand, Myanmar. The surprisingly sharp rise in recent years in the number of women and girls in prison, and the fact that female imprisonment levels have been increasing at a much faster rate than male imprisonment levels, these three realities course require explanation and it's important that governments and all those with influence on criminal justice policy are made aware of these substantial variations and of the overall growth in the levels and are encouraged to examine the reasons for the developments in their own country better understanding of these matters may I hope stimulate discourse on the use of female imprisonment and open up possibilities for positive change. It may prompt policymakers in some countries to consider whether it is really necessary to hold so many women and girls in custody. As we all know, female imprisonment has a high economic and social cost, and its excessive use certainly does nothing to improve public safety.
0: Thank you. We then had a presentation from Olivia Rope of Penal Reform International an organisation that has contributed a huge amount to getting basic standards of decent, humane treatment for women and girls in custody. Olivia talked about some of the characteristics of women prisoners and explained why more gender-informed approaches to women in criminal justice systems are so vital.
3: So today I'd like to present some key characteristics. So firstly, and the personal background. We see that women offenders come from disadvantaged communities and groups, and they're likely to be poor. We know that marginalised groups are overrepresented in the prison population as a whole, but research has shown that poverty plays a particular role when it comes to women in conflict with the law. In Tunisia, 66% of the women surveyed said that they were very poor or poor. Linked to this, we see women offenders are often unemployed or an unstable work at the time of arrest, whether it's part-time, temporary contract work or working in the black market. In Albania, 45% of women prisoners were unemployed prior to imprisonment, and of those, 83 been working, 83% had been working in the black market. Because of this, women offenders have a high dependence on male family members for money and support. Fourthly, we also see women prisoners have lower levels of education, higher Ill- illiteracy rates, and in many countries they face discrimination in access and access to education. The majority of women are mothers with dependent young children, average about 7 to 8 out of 10 women prisoners are mothers. Women offenders have higher rates of mental health issues and drug alcohol problems as well as more complex general health needs than male prisoners. Unlike the reverse with males, women in prison tend to be shunned by their spouses and often even rejected by the whole family if they're detained. This reduces connections with the outside world and their sense of isolation, impacting on their mental health and ultimate reintegration upon release. Linked to all of these characters is one of the most central themes for women offenders globally, and that is their experience of
0: violence. Our next speaker, Marie Nugier, comes from one NGO that's done a huge amount in this field, focusing on one of the tre- one of the drivers of this high trend of women prisoners. She works at the International Drugs Policy Consortium. And she told us about their work to change the conversation around female drug offending.
4: We started um, about four or five years ago, working on the impact of drug policies on women and what we 've seen in our work is that um, punitive drug laws had a very strict and very very severe impact on women and the female prison in- uh, prison incarceration rates so so You know, it's been said before, but today women are the fastest growing prison population around the world. Uh, And in many areas, this is really very much driven by repressive drug policies. We started to look at the profile of these women, and you'll see that a lot of the things I'm going to say are very much in line with what Olivia has just presented from uh, the trends around the world. Um, but you know, you can also ask: Has this strategy been effective at curbing the illicit drug market? Because the strategy of the war on drugs that has been implemented around the world, but in particular in the American continent, was around eradicating the illicit drug trade. So, has incarcerating loads of women actually been effective at curbing the drug market? We know the answer: you No. Know. Um, so, you know, no suspense there. Um, but. You know, what's interesting is to understand why it hasn't been effective, and the reason why it hasn't been effective is that we haven't really been targeted the right people. So instead of focusing on high-level criminals, on violent crimes, we've actually been focusing on the people at the lowest level of the drug trafficking chain, um, mostly they are low-level offenders, they're non-violent offenders, and very often they're first-time offenders. So. Putting away all of these women actually has no impact on the market, but it has a very severe impact on their lives, uh, and it has an impact on their children, because when a man is incarcerated for drug offenses, or for any offense, the woman will come and take care of them, will provide them with money, they will provide them with clothing, with food, whatever they need in prison. Um, But when the woman is incarcerated, she's abandoned. No one takes care of the, of the children. So that's where we see why this issue is particularly important to address for women, because it has an impact not only on the, on the person who's incarcerated, but on the whole family and sometimes entire communities.
0: Our next speaker is Teresa Njoroge. She had just arrived from delivering a TED Talk in the States, and so we were immensely honoured to have her with us in London. Teresa's organisation is called Clean Start Kenya, and they work with women and girls in Kenyan prisons. Teresa shared with us some of her own experience from her own time in a Kenyan prison. She spent a whole year in horrendous conditions, and everyone in the audience was obviously moved by her story and of the endless indignities that she and her fellow inmates had to suffer in prison. Many of those women, she said, never really recover from the experience, which she said clearly fails the most vulnerable in society.
5: Good afternoon, everybody. It's such an honor and a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you so very much, Catherine, for the invite and having me here. And I mean those words from the depth of my heart that I'm truly honored to be here today. And I say that because, coincidentally, I'm celebrating my sixth year anniversary since release from the largest correctional facility for women in Kenya, um, Langata Women Maximum Prison. (laughs) So, I mean, I have time with women just like me who are still locked at Langata Women Maximum Prison and couldn't have this opportunity. And that's why I do not take this chance for being here and discussing something that's very close to our hearts Um, with a soft spot for most of us to women um, who are affected by the criminal justice system. And um, I had a quote actually uh, to accompany this. You know, it is only after slavery and prison that the sweetest appreciation of freedom can come. I cannot start to tell you how much those women would value an opportunity to just leave those gates and rebuild their lives. Um, I was released on 4th of November, 2011, um, and the journey since my arrest in January of 2009 was one of the most horrendous, just for lack of a word, you know, to put it. I, I, I was a banker for close to 10 years, a career that I loved passionately, um, having, you know, built it up from watching my dad who was a career banker for close to three decades. And so when I was informed that I had handled a fraudulent transaction at this bank uh, unknowingly, I was really scared and terrified that I would lose this career that I had worked so hard to build. But what followed was, even shocking and more terrifying than I had ever imagined. Arrested, maliciously charged, and the prosecution followed immediately after. The absurdity of this all was the arresting officers saying to me, if you could give us 10,000 US dollars, this case could disappear just like that. And I thought, You've arrested me, knowing very well I didn't commit this crime, and here you are asking me to give you ten thousand dollars, and the ca- for the case to disappear. Two and a half years on, in and out of those courts, fighting to prove that I was innocent, they approached me again, and they said, "This time round, Teresa, if you give us fifty thousand U.S. dollars, the judgment could go in your favor." irrespective of the fact that there was no evidence whatsoever um, against the charges that I was up against. And those I came to learn were the effects, the workings of a broken criminal justice system that routinely vilifies the poor, the most vulnerable amongst us. And true to their word, I got convicted to serve a year behind bars. And I can remember the events of that day six years ago as if it were yesterday. Holding my three-month-old daughter, whom I had just named Oma, which in my dialect means truth and justice, as that's what I longed for all this time. And there she was, just about to accompany me, to serve this one year behind bars. Um, the guards did not seem sensitive whatsoever to the trauma that this experience was causing me. The searching for the contrabands upon arrival, with, without even asking you any question, the way they do it in such an inhumane manner removing, being changed from my ordinary clothes to the prison clothes in front of everyone, no privacy whatsoever, you know, right there in front of the administration block when everyone around is watching, you know. It really was a a tough night, that first night at Langata Women Maximum Prison. And no longer referred to as Teresa Njoroge, Um, I was now known as the number 415 stroke 11. And coming to learn that the women whom I'm sharing this space with, with my infant daughter, are also just a number. Um, Names don't matter, no identity whatsoever. And the women would tell me you'll adjust to this place, the prison language, the prison culture, the prison life and it's not fairy tale world at all, um, and then having it all over the media, knowing too very well that I did not commit that crime, but the shaming, the embarrassment that they make you go through nationally, the stigmatization starts right there because everyone's pointing fingers at you. You know, it really was a tough um, experience. What I didn't expect come my way was meeting this close to 700 women that I met at Langata Women Maximum Prison and hearing their stories one after the other. If you'll allow me, there are three women who I met during that year who really shaped the course of the rest of my life. One of them was Tabitha. Tabitha hardly spoke. And that's why it was so easy to single her out from the crowd. And as I sought to find out why is she ever so down, first and foremost, I learned she was having a four-year sentence. And she was having a four-year sentence because of having purchased a wrong license for the cereals that she sold. Tabitha couldn't read nor write. And she had purchased this license for 50 US dollars. They arrested her. She couldn't afford bail. Kept on pretrial, soon after convicted. She didn't know where her children were. Neither did they know where her mom was. And the way the system works in Kenya, as soon as you get locked up, your children are left by themselves, by themselves. And that's why Tapita was so down. I met another lady called Tez. Tez was in because $700 was missing in a teal in the shop where she worked, and. She was having a two-year sentence for that. A primary school dropout after her mom passed on. She had looked for work to take care of her younger siblings, a mother herself of three, married when she was a teenager, sexually abused By the time the arrest came, it was too much on her. Tess was bitter, traumatized. Life was really tough on her by the time she got to prison. And Celine, who was in pretrial for one year, eight months, while trying to make ends meet to take care of her three children, a high school dropout, who had really had a, a, a rough time pre-coming to prison. And as as I listened to story after story of these close to 700 women, you know, I felt and understood their heart and pain. And I learned that crime was not what really brought these women to prison, far from it. It started with the lack of education whose supply and quality is not equal for all. It starts with the lack of economic opportunities which pushes these women to the petty survival crimes. The broken health system, the broken criminal justice system, the broken social justice system, if any of these poor women fall through any of these cracks, the bottom of that chasm is a prison, period. The criminal justice system is failing the most vulnerable and especially the vulnerable women. It was very clear that that's what was happening. And by the time I completed my one-year sentence at Langata Women Maximum Prison, it was very clear that I had a role to play in resolving these injustices that I had experienced firsthand it's very difficult to turn your back on what you've just seen or heard. And um, after release, um, I met Jos um my partner, co-founder at Clean Start, with whom we co-founded Clean Start uh, together. Um, that, that was a slide that I wanted to explain about the youth and employment in Kenya which is at 52%, the highest within East Africa, a lot of those people in prison, I'd say 75% of those whom I met in prison were below the age of 35 years, have never been employed, have never been in any gainful employment, rotting in prisons. That those, uh, imprisonment was really not, the solution to handling those issues. What we've done is criminalized poverty, is criminalized the lack of opportunities. That's how we're solving those issues, by criminalizing them and imprisoning these people. And what it does, it it creates a revolving door of in and out of prison. Because if the little that you've built in the tough circumstances that you are at is taken away, through the imprisonment. What you get out to is even worse. And what happens is we've got a 52% um, recidivism rate in Kenya. So you're out, and within that one year, seeing these women leave and come back, I just couldn't believe, I couldn't wait for my year to end, for me to get out, and you're going out and coming back within a month, week, It's unbelievable what we've done, you know, and um, as Catherine says, I just had an opportunity of giving a TED Talk in um, New Orleans, Louisiana, but what touched my heart was meeting other women in the same space, having the same cry, and I love what, uh, Lady Edwina said, "We can't do. We can't attempt to solve this in isolation. We've got to work on this together, and that's why this means so much for us to come together and see what do we do. Because the cry is the same. It's the same across across board. You know. So when we, well, s- sorry, that didn't come out quite clear. It cut it. That's our logo at Clean Start." Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, when Joss and I sat down and, you know, had a look at what do we do to ensure that these women have a decent exit, because you can imagine being told your release day is tomorrow, and when you're told that, that's the toughest day for you. I mean, you should be happy that you're being released tomorrow, but for these women, they're so sad. Because where, where is she going to? No home, no job, no food, nothing. And she is so sad that she's being released from prison. Um, luckily, Joss had worked with Risago Trust, which is right here in the UK. It's a charity um, that has an award-winning program called Spear. Uh, apparently, they've just won an, a royal award. Um, the Princess Training Award that they they won very recently. And (laughs) what Spear does is it coaches um, its target beneficiaries on, you know, a six, it's a six-week course that changes their mindsets, uh, attitudes, and behaviors, and we journey with them through this six weeks, presentation skills, belief in themselves, and just try and raise those attitudes and self esteems up because I can assure you if you've not taken a bath for three months or so because there's no water, you have no soap, sanitary towels, you've got to cut your mattress, the thin mattress that you've got or you've got to share panties. I mean, allow me to just share some of these issues that we sometimes think do not even exist, but. First hand experiencing it and knowing that if no one comes to visit me and bring me those sanitary towels, it will be bad. And seeing these women serve 20, 30, 40 years on end with no one coming, it takes away your self esteem. So, Spear is all about raising those self esteems back up um, and getting them to dream to the best level of. What do you want to achieve in life? Who do you want to be in life? Because you can be that. And it's quite some investment to get someone who's really been beaten you know, back up to that level. So it's a lot of investment that we have to make at Clean Start. We have to first invest in the spear coaches who have to then come into the prisons, train the officers, train the women and the juvenile girls and we're yet to, you know, move over to the boys and men, you know, as well. But this is where we've started because we understand this much more better, and it, we've learned that it doesn't make any sense to just invest in the women and the juvenile girls if you're not investing in the officers and the system, you know. So a lot of investment goes in there through the spear program, and then we've got to do it two way. We've got to prepare the outside as well. We've got to do a lot of advocacy because the stigmatization of women and these juvenile girls coming out of prison is so high. One of my friends, after serving a five-year sentence, could not complete a year outside because of the stigmatization. She committed suicide. How do you do five years in prison and you can't complete one year outside? I mean, we can't be that bad. We've got to be, you know, accommodating and tolerant of these people and accord them that second chance that they genuinely seek for, you know. So we do a lot of investment on the outside on advocacy, um, speaking to the corporates uh, and, and letting them know that, you know what, um, we'd like you to hire some of um, these women and girls whom we've invested in. would like you to sponsor some of them to get back into education. And I'm so happy to say that Ted, who was a primary school dropout, uh, courtesy to one of our funders, is now back in school. She's sitting her high school exams, a brilliant, brilliant girl. Oh my, she's a writer as well. And you can see if they are given these chances, what they can become, you know? Um, And of course, entrepreneurship. So these are the three areas we transition them back into employment, education, and entrepreneurship, and of course, it involves a lot of uh, speaking to the small, medium enterprises, organisations that can come on board, and funds, funders who can, you know, get their education going. Um, that's what Clean Start is really working so hard to get going. Um, of course, we're partnering with probation and aftercare because. These are arms of the government that should be working with to bring the halfway houses that these women should go into. Um, policy changes and just making sure that we work together to ensure smooth transition. Uh, signing MOUs with Kenya Prison Service to make sure that you know we're in agreement of the sort of rehabilitation we want to bring in within the system and 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 for the girls and women. Um, it's it, it's quite some work. Um, but I must say, it's, it's, it's truly been a fulfilling journey, uh, uh, Joss and I would say, uh, seeing the recidivism rates come to zero for the women whom we've given these opportunities. We have regular get-togethers for those who've left prison. We love to call them overcomers. That's what we call them in Kenya. We call them overcomers. For instance, 9th of December, we have a get-together, and that's another program that really runs very well for us. Just making sure that they have a sense of community together uh, when they leave. And, of course, uh, peer mentoring, it's really uh, powerful for those on the inside, seeing those who've already left, um, you know, bounce back, and then come back and be the coaches as well. and and it's such a sustainable one, when we, who've been through the system, are now going back to take the other women and say, you know what, I did this, you can do this as well, yeah. So, um, for me, to end on this, I just say, we can do this, we've got to do this, and we must do it together. Thank you.
0: We then welcomed Madhurima Danuka from the Commonwealth Human Rights Institute in India. Her presentation brought a sharp focus onto one hugely avoidable cause of high prisoner numbers, and that is the overuse of pre-trial imprisonment. Madhurima told us about how this problem affects women in India, and she also described the psychological damage that prison causes many women, and again, describes needlessly humiliating conditions that take away women's dignity when in prison, leaving them scarred for years after, often abandoned by their families because of the shame that they're seen to have brought.
6: Um, It's more of a pleasure here today to talk about a topic that is not relevant only for India, where pretrial detention is 65% of our prison population, but for many countries worldwide where uh, increasingly pre-trial detention is being used as um, I think the most they consider it to be the most effective way to stop offending or probably clear out the streets of criminals. And we are absolutely appalled by the whole fact. And I totally agree with you that that's something that's really coming up to be uh, an area and an aspect where countries are must focus uh, on and think of ways to actually stop the, the tendency to use that. We all know that pre detention is one of the worst things that can happen to a person. The detainee not only loses his freedom, but he can lose his family, his health, home, his job and his community ties. Locking up millions of people who are presumed innocent is not only a violation of international norm, but in many cases unnecessary. We all know that a person is presumed innocent till proven guilty. And pretrial detention somehow just um, is a, uh, stands in stark violation of this principle. What makes the situation even worse is that, that most of the times, in th- those women who are held in pretrial detention will have the charges withdrawn due to lack of char- lack of evidence, or they are acquitted at trial. And by the time they, are, they have been acquitted, they have already served probably two or three or five years or ten years in some cases. Also in a number of cases where they are actually uh, charged or are, they are convicted, they actually have spent more time than the actual sentence would have actually been. So throughout this ordeal, most of them never see a lawyer or a legal advisor and often lack information on their very basic rights. That's really something that we need to understand and governments need to realise in their policy framing about women and about incarcerating them in free trial. Our last
0: speaker was Dr Joe Peden from the Health and Justice team at Public Health England. Joe has been working on an important project to develop women-centred standards of healthcare for female prisoners, something that is woefully lacking in so many of the world's prisons today.
7: I thought I'd start with a statistic and say, did you know that 63% of women in prison have experienced child abuse? And this is a sort of growing area of focus in the UK. Um, There's a growing body of research and evidence that shows that preventing adverse childhood experiences could actually reduce the levels of incarceration by up to 60%. So that's how important it is to address, address these issues right at the beginning and upstream prevention. Women in prison have five times the level of mental health concerns compared to the community. And under half of those women in prison have attempted suicide at some point. And I think that was really the starting point for our work at Public Health England, was the rapidly rising suicide rates in the UK in prisons. So um, we started off uh, with the overarching principles so these are the standards that we hope that all the women in prison in the UK and eventually you know, internationally to be adopted. So the evidence shows that the whole prison environment should be focused on the promoting mental health and physical well-being. So that's the sort of WHO guidance of health in prison. The um, environment needs to be trauma-informed, and I really hope, Edwina, this will help reinforce what you've been doing, that, you know, that every bit of the service and every person working in the prison environment should be aware of what what that means and how to deliver it. Um, User involvement needs to be integral in any interventions that take place. And really important, I think, for mental health and well-being is that women have purposeful activity and time out of cell. A lot of the women, um, when we look back on the ones that committed suicide, had not had access to that and they were just in a cell for 23 hours a day i mean that's not good for anyone's health and well-being and mental state Um, also structured program of peer support that was often missing and i think it's also the evidence shows that it's really effective at, at giving that support for people with mental health problems
0: after the presentations we had an open discussion with our audience and for that we were lucky enough to have Juliet Lyon with us to chair that session. Juliet was for many years the director of the Prison Reform Trust, which has made a massive contribution to understanding the needs of women prisoners and the importance of reducing their numbers. Juliet is now a visiting professor at Birkbeck.
8: It's, it's impossible to hear what we've heard this evening without feeling really very sad and really very angry. Um, and it's important to acknowledge that, because although there have been a lot of examples of hope and good practice, um, and, you know, really important outrage, Edwina, um, which, you know, people are driven by their experience, like Teresa, they're driven by a desire to highlight a particular thing, like Maria looking at drug policy, uh, but what we've seen is how, how hard it is, what a struggle it is, and how bloody long it takes, you know, and I think that's just awful. So I've found myself feeling sad hearing this again and again, this litany of why do we lock up women who've committed, on the whole, petty offences um, and yet, at the same time, have been victims of serious and violent crime? Why do we do that? It, it's cruel, uh, it's counterproductive, and it has appalling consequences. So I'm assuming that everyone's come here with that same question and that everyone here is committed to trying to do something about it. And I think that's where you start feeling a bit more hopeful, you start feeling there's something to celebrate, but you, but you have to have some baselines, you know. I mean, one of the things when I was listening to you, Joe, and I was, you know, delighted to hear about all the healthcare, I, I still think, oh my God, let's, let's make absolutely certain that, that sentences never use prison as a place of first resort because they can't get what they need in the community because they head for prison because there's better detox or there's better mental health care or, you know, we've, we've got to establish worldwide that principle of prison is an absolute place of last resort. It should never be used as a place of safety. And I was involved um, in Bangkok when we were formulating the rules there and trying very hard to, to really get that principle embedded um, before it was ratified by the UN. So, and it was difficult because in some countries it genuinely is a place of safety where women are offered sanction, um, sanctity rather, from, <coughs> violent, from violent people, you know, particularly partners who are, who are trying to either abuse or, or even kill them. And, and in a couple of countries, people said, well, we have to use our jails in this way because, so I remember that one of the rules we tried to work on was, well, if you ever do that, if you ever create a place of safety, then make sure that the woman can ask to leave and that if she asks to leave, you let her leave. That was the only way in which we could think of a, of a kind of caveat to that. But it's, it's that establishment of last resort and that fear that, you know, if we, if we focus too much on improving prison, we have to get things, it seems to me, in the right order. We start with the last resort, then for those, for those people and those women who do have to be incarcerated to protect the public, then we create the very best place of last resort we can possibly do and as you said, Joe, we, we work very hard on reintegration and support. And we've heard a lot about stigma today. We've heard a lot about women uh, across the world who aren't accepted back, who are seen as... I remember a governor in a Scottish prison saying, even with my own staff, she said, I have to say to them, these women are not peculiar kinds of odd creatures. I remember her saying that so well at Cornton Vale. She said, you know, they're women who have... Be, found themselves in poverty, women who found themselves abused, who found themselves getting caught up in a criminal justice system. They are not peculiar kinds of odd creatures. But uh, it's an irony that because they're in a minority, there is that tendency to see women in that way. And certainly here in, in the UK, they are less likely to get a housing tenancy. They are less likely to have care of their children. They are less likely to get employment if they've been incarcerated. And that's something you have to say to judges and magistrates time and again. If you're thinking of using prison, think about the impact it will have on those lives going forward into the future.
0: So where does this event and the issue of women's imprisonment fit within our World Prison Research Programme? Our prisons research at ICPR aims to bring about a deeper understanding of the many interwoven factors that combine to drive up the use of imprisonment. We are doing this to help us identify concrete, practical solutions to end this unsustainable increase in prisoner levels that we've seen in recent times. And to do that, we need to focus on providing a much better account of who it is that our countries choose to imprison and why. That is precisely the aim of our current project, understanding and reducing the use of imprisonment worldwide. That's a project that we're undertaking in collaboration with a network of NGOs, academics, lawyers and criminal justice practitioners around the world. The project entails an in-depth exploration of imprisonment in 10 jurisdictions across all five continents. Those countries are Kenya, South Africa, Brazil, the United States, India, Thailand, England and Wales, Hungary, the Netherlands and Australia. Among these countries are some with the largest prison populations in the world. The USA, Brazil, India and Thailand are all in the top six globally. Most of these ten countries have seen very significant increases in their female prison populations since 2000, as the list that we've just published shows women across the world are predominantly incarcerated for minor non-violent property or drug related crimes they're often primary carers for one or more children or older family members this surely suggests that the economic and social costs of imprisoning women will in most cases outweigh the supposed benefits that should prompt us to look more carefully at whom we imprison and ask in every case why we imprison and what we expect prison to achieve. Thanks for listening.